All right, there we go. What I was saying that, that they didn't really need to hear, but they'll hear anyway. I moved this light over here this morning. We're, we've, we're down to where the lights go and all that in the, our new worship center coming up. We're just down to the last details. And I don't think I got that thing back right, and it's uh, shining in my eyes this morning. And you know when you're old and you look in lights, you start seeing spots. Not that I'm old, but I've heard people say that. If you're a guest, welcome. A couple of things just to orient yourselves. Um, we preach through the books of the Bible, uh, one verse at a time, one chapter at a time. And, and so we're working through Romans. We find ourselves in Romans 3. I invite you to turn with me to Romans 3, 9 to 18. That's where we're going to be today. We will stop and break for, and have a different message for Christmas, but the message is going to be the same. And I point us right towards the gospel today. And uh, the other thing we, we do every week in, in honor of Christ and in obedience to his command and celebrate communion we practice here what we call close communion. That's C-L-O-S-E. What that means is that as a church, we believe if you are born again, you are welcome to the tables. And so at the end of the, uh, as a response after the message, we're going to open the, the table up communion for us to invite the body of Christ to come and celebrate communion together. And so just sort of orient yourself. You should have a white piece of paper that is on that blue table. You're not going to bother me if you need to get up and get it because we are Bible people here, and you will use your Bibles today, and you will need that outline. And so please, as you st- stand with me, and if you need to, get you some uh, sermon notes. So stand in honor of God's Word. Romans 3, we're going to pick up in verse 9 this morning. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of ass is under their lips. Their mouths is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning that... Week by week, we get to hear all of what you have said. Year by year, you have taught us much from your word, from both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we have both coming together in this passage today with with one message, that all people have a universal problem. So, Lord, we thank you that even now, even before we get to the text, we've been singing the solution to the problem, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, speak to your people today. Do your Holy Spirit work with those who may not be saved. Bring salvation today in this place, even over technology as it goes into people's phones and TVs, all these things. We trust your Holy Spirit as it work today in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. 
We've talked about this before, uh, but it is an important in understanding the context today and especially the application. Um, you may not have experienced this in your situation, but, but it was surely part of mine and uh, from schools and churches and different places. It sounds a lot like a six-year-old or eight-year-old begins to hear about two places, uh, a place called heaven. And a place called hell. Heaven is a place with gold streets. And everybody gets a mansion. And if you listen to the right music. You even have a really big yard where you can play football. I like that. What child wouldn't? But then you hear about the other place. Darkness, fire, worms. Gnashing of teeth. I don't know what that didn't. I don't know what that is at eight years old, but it doesn't sound good. And then the question: Who wants to go to heaven? Yeah, I can't even hardly do that now. Remember how you put? Oh, me, 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 me. And everybody raises their hands. It's all you got to do is pray this prayer and accept Jesus. Into your heart. And then you will have all these benefits, these wonderfulness, gold streets and mansions, it'll all be yours. And you can write your name in the back of your Bible and never doubt because besides, we're Baptist. And once saved, always saved. Isn't it curious that Paul would write a letter to the church? And it sounds like the text I just read. Paul would also write to the church in 2 Corinthians 13.5. It's on the screen. It's not in your notes. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourself. Or do you not realize this about yourself that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Verse 6 says, I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. He writes to religious people who thinks that they're better off than those irreligious people. Says there is an inerrant danger in thinking that there is something you can do religiously. Write it down and then go live your life as if Jesus doesn't exist. And so what he does here, this metaphor that he's going to carry, not only this, but even after Christmas, is that of a courtroom. And there's a charge. And then there's testimony. And then there's a verdict. I'm not going to get to the verdict today. Praise the Lord for Christmas. We're going to have the answer to the solution wrapped in placed in a manger, but let's get to the main idea. All people stand guilty before God and have the same universal need. There is a charge, and there are two witnesses today, and I want you to see it. But let's look at the charge first. It's right here in verse 9, and we've already been studying it for the last two chapters. Matter of fact, that's what he says. In verse 9, he says, what then? Are Jews any better off? What he means is, are they any better off than the Gentiles. And he says, no, not at all. 
For we have already charged that both Jew and Greek are under sin. That word charged there means to file a legal charge for someone. It's legal language. Here's the courtroom coming in and up. And so what he's charging then is all people have this, what we would call, they are totally depraved. You're sitting there going, I don't like that word. Let's just, let me tell you what I mean by that. And then you tell me what the text is saying. What we mean by that is that sin affects every aspect of your being. It affects your nature. It affects your minds, your wills. It affects every corner of your body. There is no island of goodness inside of you that is not affected by sin. That's what it means. The question is, is this what the text means? Just notice the universality of sin is reflected by the language. Just look at Romans 3. Just notice. If we read the original language, we would notice that there's the one Greek phrase that's repeated over and over. The Greek phrase is, there is none. That's what it's transliterated. There is none. And so look at your Bibles. There is none righteous. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks after God. There is no one who does good. No, there's no one, not even one. So he's, you see it? You don't have to be a scholar to see that. He's being clear. Total depravity does not mean that we're as bad as we could be. But, it, but bear witness to this. If there was not God-ordained government and laws, and family, and marriage, and children, and all of these things that God has ordained, man would consume themselves in a blink of an eye. God's restraining hand is on His creation, even in the very human conscience. So that's the charge. What's the first witness? The first witness is going to be Things within us. The first is our character. So remember, we're saying, yeah, yeah, I, I, that whole Jesus thing, I, I done did that. I, I did that when I was eight. I did it when I was ten. I got my car, it's in my wallet, or it's in a filing cabinet somewhere. They give it to me in an envelope once I've finished. But there is a witness that stands up in this courtroom in his text. And the first is your character. For we have already charged, verse 9, that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Verse 10, as it is written. Now, what is he saying? Y'all tell me. What, is he, what does the Bible mean when it says, as it is written? What does that mean? What is that? What are they doing? What's Paul doing? Quoting. Quoting the Scripture. When, he's, when the when New Testament, you call Scripture, he says, they're quoting the Old Testament. There's no chapter and verses here. But he says, as it is written, there is none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So what is lacking? And this is essential. 
When you, when you tell a six-year-old they can pray a prayer or take a class or sign a card and then everything's going to be okay because you see man has a problem. They lack the righteousness that's needed to please God. They lack a righteousness. They lack something. They have no ability in and of themselves to bring it. What he's quoting among other texts is Psalms 14. Let's know what it says. It says, the fool says in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. Now listen for the righteousness and the opposite of righteousness. They are corrupt. <laughs> I hate this word. I can't say it. Abominable. Did I get that right? Wow, I practiced that. If y'all would have came in early this morning, I was practicing that back there in my little corner. They do really bad deeds. There is none. This is the, you, if you write in your Bible, this is the underline. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if anyone who understands, anyone who seeks after God, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. Here it is again. There is none who does good. Not even one. Matthew 5.48 makes it even clear that we lack something. When, he, when Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. There is an expectation. Perfection. There is a standard. The Father in heaven. And he's not going to move it because of your emotions. Philippians 3, 9. Paul's making the point that Jesus is the answer. He says that he desires to be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So can I teach you a word here? What we need is an alien righteousness. And it's not from a Martian or something. What we need is a, is a righteousness that's not in and of ourselves. Jonathan Edwards says this, You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Ouch. Ouch. Why? Because we have a nature problem. We are all under the weight of sin. He's already began to teach us in chapters 1 and 2 that we are under the judgment that comes from sin. This word here is best understood if you've ever read John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. That's the picture here. That sin creates a burden. It creates a weight. One that nothing and no one can remove. But if you remember that story that only coming to the cross of Christ made that burden roll down the hill. Never to be put on again. We're under the weight of sin. But the rest of Scripture teaches that we're also under the control of sin. Galatians 3.22 says, But Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, 
so that the promise by faith in Christ might be given to those who believe. I've been studying, I would recommend this. Just read Proverbs a little bit every day. Proverbs 20 verse 9 says, Who can say, I have made my heart pure? Who can say, I am clean from my sin? The answer, nobody. We're going to get to this, but uh, we got to at least... Look under, peek under the hood just a little bit. Romans 6, 6 says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. The negative is true. We're in the negative right now. If you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, that not only you are carrying a weight called sin, you are being enslaved by that sin and have no power to free yourself. That's what the text is saying. And it's saying that this is a universal problem. But hold on, Pastor, aren't there exceptions? The text says, no, there is no one. There is not even one. Ephesians 2.3 says that we were by nature children of wrath. And there is no exemption clause for certain people. He's casting the net to say, all people, the Jew first, and then everybody else. We have a nature problem. We have a mind problem. Verse 11. No one understands. Again, they're quoting the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes 7.20 Surely there is not a man, a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. It's just true. Universal testimony of Scripture. Our minds, I've been saying this over and over because I want you to grab it. Our minds choose out of its greatest desires and our nature is enslaved by sin. Does that make sense? We choose what we desire, and we are responsible for that choice, and we are free to make that choice. But the issue is that we are, our natures are enslaved, and so our minds begin to make decisions from people-pleasing to addictions. What we don't understand, what don't we understand? Well, the context of the passage, the context of this letter, really, is righteousness. We don't understand what righteousness involves. We dare not tread on the holiness of God. We we assume it. When we tell that little eight-year-old, then you need to accept Jesus, we say, you sovereign man must give little Jesus permission. You must accept him rather than, would not it make more sense that the king of glory must accept you? Does not that bear witness to the truth? But we have minimized it. We have minimized righteousness. And it says the reason we have done it is because in our natural state, we can do nothing else. Wisdom is not inborn. It is not intrinsic. It comes from God, His Word, and His people. Proverbs 7, a father says, 
flee the forbidden woman, but run to the faithful woman. It's practical. The better you understand God, the better you know who you need to be in relationship with. It takes wisdom. And we don't have it. You're just not born with it. Yeah, there are intelligent people, but they have no ability to do anything of eternal value. They have a righteousness problem and no ability to understand what to do about it. But not only that, look at what else into end of verse 11. Our minds has a problem. Our natures have a problem. But we also have a motivation problem. It is not just the issue that we oftentimes find ourselves doing bad things. Because what we do is not the issue all the time. A lot of people do a lot of good things. The question is, why are we doing it? Because the why pollutes the good so it's not good in the eyes of God who is the standard for good it says no one seeks for God that means no one is looking naturally in the unregenerate state to see what is God's will we are not naturally motivated to please him to honor him to make practical decisions in our every day to make him look good We do not go out onto onto our boats fishing or onto the golf course and say, what I am doing here, though it brings me joy, is ultimately me making much of Christ when people look at me. Instead, we find the unregenerate religious person going in doing the same things with the same friends that everybody else does and sees nothing wrong with it. That is not the place of a regenerate person. Because the unregenerate do not seek God. They don't seek His will. And listen, the devil would just assume you live in open rebellion or in great religion. What was it? Marx says religion is the opiate of the masses. There's a little bit of truth in every lie. We have a wheel problem. We have a motivation problem. That inner man, that nature is affecting how you think. It's affecting what you desire. And it's affecting what you choose. Again, Jonathan Edwards is the man of the week. The will is always determined by the strongest motive. Whatever your strongest motive is, that is what you're going to choose. Hold on a second. Time out. Doesn't the Bible appeal to people to search after God? I mean, doesn't Matthew 6.33 say, Seek first the kingdom of God. And Matthew 7 say, Seek and you will find. And knock and the door will be open. I would challenge you to first say, Who is he talking to? But let me... Let's think about this for a minute. Now, this is the main part of I want you to get this morning. So, if you've zoned out here, it's okay. But zone back in for a minute. Why does it appear sometimes that unbelievers are seeking after God? There's one of them old dead guys that wrestled with this same question. 
And we're thankful for people who wrestle with the same questions we do, but write it down. His name was Thomas Aquinas. And he wrestled with this question. And here's, what, here's his point. That everybody, no matter who they are, seek for things like truth, peace of mind, eternal life, happiness. Everybody wants to find some remedy for this guilty conscience that keeps them up at night. And though Christians understand when we see that, that only a right relationship with God through Christ can bring those things. When we see people seeking after those things, we leap to the conclusion that they must be searching for God, that they're really searching for God in that bottle. They're really searching for God in that peel. They're really searching for God in that relationship. But see, that's precisely when human depravity is revealed. How is that? Aquinas says this, Because man seeks for the benefits of God while he flees the person of God. See that? He seeks benefits. Oh, he wants eternal life. Oh, we want happiness. Oh, we want peace. Oh, we want freedom from that addiction. Or whatever it might be. But we don't want God. Because if it is, we have to deal with this issue of our needed righteousness. Which brings us to our sin. Listen, what I want you to understand today is that God is not playing games. He's not playing games with you. He's not playing games with anybody else. He's not into hide and seek. He's not down with that game. He didn't go anywhere. He's not hiding where we have to find him. He is the one biblically that's searching for us. And if that's not true, why are we celebrating Christmas? Ezekiel 34, 11 says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As the shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. In Luke, Luke 19, 5, the story of Zacchaeus. We say Zacchaeus was searching for God. I challenge you to go back and read that story. Jesus gets to a place and he stops and he looks up. He said, I'm going to your house. That interchange, that conversation, and that salvation was planned before the foundation of the world. There are no accident encounters in your life. There's only a cross and a mission. From Genesis to Revelation, Scripture teaches us that God is the one that comes to seek and to save the lost. He sent His Son to save us from our sin because we could not do it on our own. And we could not ascend the hill of the Lord. It's why there is an incarnation. It's why we celebrate, stop whatever we are doing next week to remember He came seeking for me. Because I would not seek for him. I didn't even know I had a problem. 
but God came seeking for you. Mankind has a character problem, and mankind has a conduct problem. This is, if you're, if you're a member from my John study, this is both the root and the fruit. We are, we are sinful from the word go. We are sinful down in the roots of our life to the fruits that hang on our tree. And so he raises another witness and says, what about your conduct? And interesting, of all the things he could focus on, look at what he points out in verse 13. We have a mouth problem. In other words, our mouths bear witness about our something that's wrong. It says their throat, verse 13, is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouths is full of curses and bitterness. To prove that all people have a problem before a holy God. He says, let's think about your mouths for a minute. Let's think about how you used your mouths this past week. Augustine, in one of his works called On Christian Teaching, discusses the gift of communication. In fact, I was talking to my, my, my buddy in the back a minute this week. Wasn't we? we were talking about this, this what Adam and Eve, and what did they, what did they talk, and how did they talk to God. And there's this, there's this amazing uh, gift of language and communication. And sometimes it's verbal, sometimes it's not. But why is that? What is the purpose of that? Well, it's a common grace. But the first purpose is for us to use it to praise and honor and communicate with our Creator. And instead, we use it to serve ourselves, our sinful natures. Our sinful character, you see, drives our sinful conduct. This is not my opinion. Jesus said, Matthew 12, 34, the mouth speaks from the overflow of the what? The heart. Oh, the Proverbs. Again, I'm commending the Proverbs to you. Why do I have so many Proverbs in here today? Because I've been reading a lot in Proverbs. Proverbs 10, 31. The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, but the perverse tongue will be cut off. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked is perverse. I had to put James in here because he gave almost a whole chapter to the mouth. James says the mouth is like a fire. James 3, 5, and 6 just sets your world on fire. But the text here in verse 13 said it's like a poison. It's like a poison. He's quoting Psalms 140, verse 3 there. Notice he just quotes all kinds of places in Scripture. He's not the only one that used this language. Both Jesus and John the Baptist called the most religious people in their day vipers. It says the mouth is like an open grave. Verse 13. There again he's quoting Psalms 5-9 there. But there is no truth in their mouths and the innermost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongues. Now in, in this day, the reason why they would say such a thing is they didn't have embalming and preservation like they do today. When, when you died, 
They had to get you buried. And they had to cover you quickly because they would, you would begin to be corrupted. And then disease could be transferred to living people. So that's the, the picture. The tongue is like a grave that's left open where the disease and the decay begins to permeate and get into everything. It, it reminds me, you ever had to been sitting around with somebody who talks with their mouth full? And you finally begin to realize, you know, there's no way if I'm sitting close to that person that something's not going to get on me. This is the picture here. We have got to the place of conduct where it is impossible for your conduct to not to begin to affect other people. It says their mouths are filled with cursing and bitterness. You should take heed. If you have bitterness in your heart and it does not plague you like a cancer. Yes, Christian people get angry and Christian people can grow cold and bitter. But we will not stay there. The Holy Spirit will convict you. Your conscience will plague you. But we need to be careful as Christians to examine ourselves based off this word. Because the sin in our conduct affects our relationship with other people. In verse 15 and 16, we see that there is a walking problem. There is a path problem. Walking in the Bible means your pattern of life. It doesn't mean something that you're just trying to live like Christ and, you, and you know, we slip and fall, run face plant. We've, we, we do that all the time. We repent. We get up. Keep moving forward. We're talking about a pattern of life. Our feet are taking us, this is what the text is saying, to, to dreadful places. 1 John 3.15 says to hate someone is to murder them with your mouth. How long did it take for the sin in the garden to produce a dead son in the field? How could that one disobedience in the garden with Adam and Eve produce Cain murdering his brother because sin was in the nature that affected his desires. And he got jealous, got hateful, resented him, and killed him. Fallen man is hostility against God always bleeds out into God's image bearers. It will always attack those people who bear his image. We have a walking problem. We have a path problem. There again, we have this picture in Ecclesiastes 8 of this forbidden woman bidding, bidding us as men to come and walk down this pathway, promising us things in what Solomon or 
the preacher and Proverbs are saying is, if you go down that pathway, it only leads to death. And yet, time after time, we buy into the lie, don't we? It promises us life and it brings misery. It promises you rest and leaves you up at night. Because the pathway of sin doesn't have ability to produce life. The pathway of sin only has the ability to produce death. He, has, he gives us in verse 17. It says, he says, the way of peace they have not known. What he is not saying is they don't desire peace. He's saying they can't find it. They've never experienced it. They long for it. Luke 1, 79, thinking about Christ coming, says that Jesus came to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. We all intrinsically desire peace. The Jews so much desired it that it was the word they used for hello and goodbye. They used the word shalom, peace. Peace only comes one way. It only comes through one path. You see the blasphemous heresy to conclude that there is multiple ways to peace? Multiple paths to peace? He finally gets down to it. It's almost like he leaves his best argument for last in verse 18 when, when he says... There's no fear of God before their eyes. In other words, what this sin produces practically is it affects our relationship with other people, but ultimately it bleeds from our relationship with God. And how can we tell we have a relationship with God? It says you don't tremble in the presence of God. There is an absence of not only trembling, there is an absence of delighting. The absence of the fear of the Lord leads to every other problem we've already talked about. And if you don't know what it is, I would say that's number one. That's number one. Get the fear of God right. And at least what Solomon said is, wisdom will be yours. So fear is not some servile fear. Fear is a parental fear. One who loves and delights in the parents and knows that they don't want to sin and do what's wrong against them. So what? I I think we have to come back to this question. Sort of the question with the illustration at the beginning. Do I want Christ? And him alone. Oh, I just want the benefits of Christ. I, I, I just want this to go away. And I want this to come. And so, I'm going to come in here. I'm going to embrace this system. At least for a while. And see if it works for me. 
maybe this will go away and this will come. Listen, it's a dangerous thing to try to prostitute God. Jesus Christ is just not one of many answers. He is the only answer. He's the only way. We need Him. He doesn't need you. We need Him. We are the ones with the universal problem. And He is the one who sent His Son, His own Son, to absorb the wrath that you, need, should, you must pay so that you can have the righteousness that you desperately need. And we must not, we must not allow ourselves to prostitute the Almighty nor His church. And listen, I love to help people. And my leaders know they have to pull me away from it, and back, pull me back and pull me tension. That's why I love that we're elders. We, we balance out each other. But listen, this is the truth. Someone can't pay their rent. And who do they go to first? They shop around to every church in, in, in Kings Mountain, seeing what church will pay their rent or pay their power bill. And yet they have no intentions of coming to the fountain of life where they might live. They want the benefits of Jesus, but they don't want Jesus. You see, Jesus comes with a cross. Amen? Jesus comes with a mission. Have we not grown this past year? And have we not glorified God, Jesus, and more Jesus in this last year because we have suffered more than we have been in comfort? We do not desire suffering, but we cannot escape the, path, the pathway of the cross. Jesus comes with the cross, and if you don't want him, then you don't want salvation. But when you come to him, you not only get heaven, you not only get adoption, you not only get assurance, you not only get security, you not only get a family, you get a purpose. Authentic faith comes with a cross. Shall we not embrace it? It also comes with a mission to save lost people. And listen, it's important. The truth of the Bible does not change because lost people have names. The truth of the Bible does not change about what it says about eternity. The truth of the Bible does not say about what it says about depravity. The truth of God does not change about what it says about the bad news. Because somebody we know has a name and that are lost. And so we try to change our doctrine and change the truth of the Bible to conform to our emotionalism. When what it should do, what it must do, is send us on a mission. Because that is your purpose. The truth of God does not change. And sometimes it is glorious. And sometimes it is sober. But it is the truth that comes from God that we as His people must embrace. That's what brings Him glory. And listen, that's what brings joy. That's what brings the peace. I close with this, one of my favorite 
chapters in the Bible because I think sometimes when we look at texts like this and even talk about the fear of God, we forget about the beauty of God. Don't ever underestimate that. And I would just challenge you. How much of your like daily life, how much of like when you're doing your hobbies or when you're riding in the car? You remember that hymn that said, Then sings my soul? How much of your everyday life is your soul singing to God? Sometimes in the midst of desperation, sometimes out of great joy. You see, it is those and those only that have seen the beauty of Christ. So I want to do something every once in a while I do it. It's just because someone taught it to me. Open your Bibles up to Psalms 27. We're going to pray and close here. Psalms 27. I would make it a practice, if you don't already, of praying the Psalms. David did. And he wrote them down for his, his people and us to enjoy. So let's, let's pray Psalms 27. You just pray in your heart. Now, I'm going to lead us. The Lord... Lord, you are our light and our salvation. If we have you, we have nothing to fear. You have proven to be the stronghold of our lives. What do I have to be afraid of? When enemies attack me, when people who don't like me seek to destroy me, It is there he will fall. You sent your angels to encamp around us so our hearts won't fear. The wars rise up around us, conflict around us, yet we will be confident. But, oh Lord, one thing we desire, one thing will we we seek after God, that we may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of our life. God, we desire to gaze upon the beauty of you and to gather with your people to enjoy you. Oh Lord, at the worst times in our life, you will hide us and be our shelter. You will conceal us when we need to be concealed. And you will lift us when we need to be lifted. For your son is a rock. But now, my head will be lifted up. And right now, we will offer our sacrifices of joy. And we will sing and make melody to the Lord. So hear us, Lord, when we cry. Be gracious to us and answer us. You've told us to seek your face. 
And so we come to you today saying, God, we seek you. Don't hide your face from us. Don't turn away from us. Do not forsake us because, oh God, you are the only one that has salvation. Though anyone else in our family walks away from us, you will take us in because of the gift of your son. Teach us, oh God, to walk in your ways. Protect us from those who seek to destroy us. But this we believe, no matter what happens in this life, we believe that we will look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So God, today, we will wait on you. And as we wait, we will be strong and courageous. In Jesus' name, amen.